All right, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your spirit to be here with us. We're seeking answers from your word, Lord, of how your truth applies to our lives and setting us free from the chains that bind. I pray, Lord, for every person who's going to listen to this message, that you will help us to speak to exactly what they're going through and to help them to see how your truth applies to their lives. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, I have titled this When Truth Meets Life because in so many of my seminars, I tell real life stories, but they're not exactly the story of whoever it is that contacts me later and says, you know, what you shared was so beautiful, but here's what I'm going through. And their situation is unique, as every person's is, right? So I decided to do a seminar called When Truth Meets Life to talk about how you can find the application to what's going on in your situation, how the gospel applies to your life when truth meets your life personally. Now I want to talk about, by, uh, to start out, what is the gospel? We've talked about this some in previous seminars, but not all of you were here. The gospel is a message that God sets us free. He started out by creating man with the power to spend all of eternity growing more and more into the image of God, day by day, step by step, as they would behold his love, they would go, wow, what a God, what an amazing being, how can I serve him more effectively? And as they give their lives to God more effectively, they will be transformed into his image more and more. So people, even though they were not sinful, had this tremendous potential for growth throughout all of eternity. God wanted us to be growing. That's the way he's made us, with the, the ability to be perfect at the point where we are, and yet with infinite potential for growth into his image. But as we know, people sinned. Adam and Eve made the choice to believe the devil's lies. And as a result, God says, okay, my purpose is still the same, to change you into my image day by day, moment by moment, as you behold me. But the way things will happen will be a little different. Now I'm going to have to work in your sinful nature to transform. And rather than just creating, he showed, I have the power to recreate. Any person who's willing to surrender to me, I will take them and I will change them. I'll mold them into my image again so that I can be the transforming influence in their lives. I will redeem you. So not only is he the creator, he's the recreator. And that's the, that's the plan of redemption. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We hear those words so many times that we kind of forget what they really are. This is the power of God. When truth meets life, God says, I will take whatever situation you're in, and I will change you into my image, not just in spite of the bad things happening, but even because of the bad things happening. That's the God we serve. But what about how does truth meet it? life in my life? What's going on for me? This is what I struggle with as a counselor. You know, this is my ministry. I sit down with people and I help them understand how the gospel applies to what's going on in their lives. And it's always a struggle. How do we know? How do we get to the root? What's really going on in this carnal heart? What does God want to change in this person? What about, you know, I'm just being honest with you. What about, you know, a few days ago, a girl called me. I've been ministering to her for years. She said, I'm really scared. I've been making a lot of mistakes lately. I know I haven't been in touch with you. Well, there's been this guy, and now I'm afraid I'm pregnant. And I just found out yesterday that he's cheating on me, not with just one other girl, but two other girls. He's been playing all three of us. I can't believe I fell for this. I'm so angry at myself, and I'm so terrified. How does truth meet life for this girl? What about the guy who I talked to last week who's addicted to pornography? He's leading in ministry. He's this paragon of virtue in many people's minds, but secretly he's battling. He can't overcome. It's been years. He can't find any way to find the victory. So finally he's asking for help. How does truth meet life for this guy? What about the woman who called me yesterday whose husband is planning to leave her? She married a good Christian man. The Lord led them together, but now he's tired of having to work at marriage. He's leaving her with two little kids. How does truth meet life for this woman? Or the woman who called me the day before that? who says, what do I do? My husband's hypocritical life and his, his way of living this, this double life, it's destroying my daughter's spiritual life. She's a teenager. She hates God. She hates her dad. She hates everything. 
and I can't stand him. I don't want to be with him. I can't stand to see his face. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't want to connect with me. And yet I have to sit and listen to him preach every week. How does truth meet life for that woman? What would you say to her? What do I say to her? How does truth meet life? For the girl that just emailed me this week who says, I don't know what to do. I have so much anger toward God. Why does he demand that I trust him when he's re revealed himself to be so untrustworthy in my life? He hasn't protected me. He hasn't taken care of me. And now he says, you've got to trust me. Yeah, how? You haven't done anything to take care of me. How can I trust you with my life? What about the girl who's struggling with tremendous fear because she's been sexually abused, and now any time a guy walks behind her, she has a panic attack? What about, what about the guy who has OCD? This, this is last week, too. I'm just telling you the, the last week here, you know. This guy who has OCD, spiritual obsessive compulsive disorder, he feels tremendous guilt when he makes some small, tiny, insignificant mistake. It's not even a sin, it's a mistake. Oh no, how could I have done this? He has to be perfect. How does truth meet life for these people? How does the gospel apply? Does it really work? Does the gospel really work? What is the gospel? The gospel is the story of a God who comes down and lives out his perfection in humanity. That means the way Jesus came down and lived it out in his sinless life and how he promises, if you will surrender to me, I will live out my perfection in your life. You may not do everything perfectly right now, but you can be perfectly surrendered, and I will keep revealing to you ways that I want you to grow into my image more and more. That's the gospel. It's the goal is transforming me into his image. The goal of the gospel is to change me to become like Jesus. The process of transformation is by beholding him, I become changed. As I focus on him, I don't have to focus on myself. You know, um, in Pilgrim's Progress, I don't know if you guys, have you ever heard the CD version of you know, Pilgrim's Progress? There's Christian and then there's the Christiana one. In Christiana, there's this compelling part where they're going through the slew of despond. And she keeps telling them, eyes on the light, everyone. And now forward, we've got to keep going with our eyes on the light. That's the only way you can keep from falling, with our eyes on the light. You know, God wants us to keep our eyes on him, not on ourselves. When we start focusing on ourselves and the mistakes that we're making, we'll always fall. My husband uses this great illustration of a broom. He has somebody come up and hold a broom um, on their hand and balance it. Says, all right, now look up at the broom and balance it. And they'll stand there and they'll do this and they can keep the broom up there. Then he says, now look at your hand. And they look at their hand and they can't, they can't balance it. The broom always falls. If we look at ourselves, if we focus on ourselves, instead of beholding Christ, we'll always fall. We're destined for destruction because we're falling for the devil's lie right there. Before you even make an outward mistake, we've fallen for the lie, ye shall be as gods. You can take care of yourself. You don't have to focus on the light. You can focus on yourself. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. It's a lie. We have to focus on him, not on ourselves. This is the purpose of our life, being changed into the image of God, transformed as we behold him. And God wants to do that in your life and in my life, in every person's life. I've just given you a whole bunch of examples of things that are going on in other people's lives, but what about your life? You haven't told me your story, but God knows your story. And whatever complicated situation you're facing, he has the answers. He's going to work it out as you surrender it to him. And as you say, Lord, show me where are the sinful roots, where are the things that I'm clinging to, the attitudes that are wrong. When happiness is our goal, we're always on the wrong track because that's self-focus. When holiness is our goal, God can use those situations, whatever it is we're facing, to transform us into his image. But what is our goal? Happiness or holiness? What is a biblical perspective? Which one is supposed to be our goal, according to the Bible? Holiness is supposed to be our goal. What is the goal of the carnal nature, happiness or holiness? The carnal nature's goal is always happiness. And when happiness is my goal, pain is my enemy. But when holiness is my goal, sin is my enemy. This is how God wants to shift our minds, help us to see things through the eyes of faith. Look at Joseph's life. What if you had been Joseph? You try to do what God says, you obey your father, and as a result, your brothers sell you as a slave. 
that's not fair. But he says, okay, whatever happens, I'm going to trust God. So he trusts God and he's faithful in everything he does. And because of that, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him and he's thrown into prison. And then because he's faithful to God and, and everything is going fine, right? It's all wonderful. He says, Lord, I just trust you with whatever's going on in my life. One disappointment after another hits him. He interprets the dreams for the butler and baker and says, wow, the Lord can set me free. Maybe this is it. When you go to Pharaoh's palace, mention me to him. Tell him about me. One more disappointment. It's unfair. It's so profoundly unfair. But Joseph's goal was not happiness. Joseph's goal was holiness. And as a result, you notice in his life that he is happy. When he comes into the cell where the butler and the baker are, he says, why do you guys look so sad today? Um... Because we're in prison? He, they have some really good reasons to be sad, don't they? But Joseph is content. Not that he likes being there, because right after that he says, please try to get me out of here. He doesn't like being in prison, but he's content and joyful in prison. God doesn't want us to seek happiness as our goal, but when we seek holiness as our goal, we have something better than happiness. We have joy. We have contentment. In the midst of whatever it is I'm going through, I can have peace. I may be grieving. I may be hurting. But I can still have that deep joy of knowing God is with me in the midst of whatever I'm suffering. Pain is not our enemy. Sin is our enemy. The devil and the world and everything around will, you tell, will tell you pain is your enemy. But sin is your enemy. When relief of the inevitable pain of living in a fallen world becomes our priority, at that moment, we leave the path toward pursuing God. That's from the book Inside Out, page 79. A great book for those who are needing to work through issues from their past and help the, have the Lord get down into the brokenness of their lives, and help them find healing. But we can't make our goal relief of pain. You know, we live in a pain relief society. Our culture, especially in America, sees pain as the sin. As the pain as the enemy. Pain is the thing that you don't want to have. You know, when I was, when I, I was pregnant with my first child, I was looking at all the things they have in Babies R Us, you know. And I came upon this little thing, a wipes warmer. And I thought, a wipes warmer. Because we wouldn't want to touch her butt with a cold, wet wipe, would we? Come on. <laughs> she is coming into the real world. <laughs> we want to rescue everybody from everything. No discomfort necessary. No, no, we wouldn't want to be uncomfortable. One of the greatest things about mission trips is people have to go out there and face discomfort. They get hot. They have to take cold showers. They stub their toes. They get bug bites. And they're like, wow, look at all the awesome things that are going on in my life. I'm not consumed with self. Pain is not our enemy. Sin is our enemy. The choice before us is rather stark. Either live to be comfortable or live to know God. We can't have it both ways. One choice excludes the other. Inside Out, page 99. Why did God make Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden? Wasn't that kind of mean of him? You know, Eve had such faith in God's goodness and God's love that she thought, well... He said that we would die, but, you know, God is so loving. Surely he wouldn't take everything away from us just because we, you know, ate a little piece of fruit, would he? He's not that mean, is he? And the devil will tell you the same lie. God is taking away all these things just because you made one little mistake, and now he's doing this to you. But God took us out of Eden not because... He was mean, not because he's like, all right, if you're going to do that, I'm going to give you a consequence. You're going to get what you deserve. You know, when I punish my children for some bad choice they've made, it's not because I'm so mad at them that I just want to hurt them. You hurt me, and now I'm going to hurt you back. Is that like Christ? Not at all. No, I give them a consequence because I know this is what will help you learn. I have to swat their hand because I know if, if you don't learn to obey me the first time I tell you, one of these days it could cost you your life. And not just your physical life, but if you don't learn to obey the first time when authority tells you what to do, someday when God says to you, do this, and you refuse, you may lose your eternal life. I have to teach them. Obey authority. Do what you're told to do. Submit, because if you don't, someday you'll lose out on eternity. And the only way that I can teach them that is by pain. You know, there's a fascinating book called The Gift of Pain that tells about, and it's a, 
it's a long, complicated story. I have to try to summarize here. This guy who wrote it was a surgeon, an expert on pain, and he discovered how leprosy actually works. That leprosy, you know, they used to think leprosy makes your nose fall off and your toes fall off and makes you go blind and all of those things. He discovered what actually happens is leprosy numbs your nerves so that you can no longer feel pain in your fingers, in your feet, in your extremities. Gradually, you get numb, and as you get numb, you no longer take care of those things. You walk all day long with the same stride, boom, 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 whereas natural people move, they adjust the way that their feet land as they walk so that they don't end up with ulcers in one place. It's totally unconscious. But when you don't feel pain, then you just walk in the same place every day and you get an ulcer on your foot. And then because it doesn't hurt, yeah, it's infected, but it doesn't hurt, lepers wouldn't take care of it. And then eventually they lose a foot. They would go blind because they would forget to blink. They would lose fingers because they wouldn't take care of them. He said he watched a leper just stick his hand right into the fire to pull out a, a baking potato that had fallen down into the fire. And he realized, oh, that's what they're doing. They're destroying themselves. Their toes would disappear because in the night, rats would come and eat them, and they wouldn't wake up. It's horrible. But do you see why God uses leprosy as an allegory for sin? It's because sin numbs us. We no longer think that it hurts. You know, initially, we do something bad. We feel so guilty. But after a while, we stop feeling so guilty. It's not so bad. You know, it's only PG-13. Come on. Do you know what my friends are watching? We get numb. We go farther. Sexual sin is a terrible sin because it isn't something that creeps up on you like this. Nobody leaps into bed like this. You make decisions, little decisions, to push away the voice of the Holy Spirit. I know we really shouldn't go in here alone together, but it's okay. I mean, come on. I know we probably shouldn't be touching each other so much, but, you know, little sins lead to big sins. Sexual sin is a big issue, not only because it has big consequences, but because it comes as a persistent uh, refusal to listen to the Holy Spirit. That's how people get into those situations. That's why adultery can cut off the marriage vows, because it's not something that people do like this. I had somebody try to convince me once. He's like, oh, come on, it is just something that I accidentally did. Like, right, to your wife? That's, this, is not, this is not how sin happens. You don't just accidentally sit down with some woman and end up in bed with her two hours later. You made a persistent choice to see women as the solution to your problems instead of God, to see pleasure, to see satisfaction of your carnal lusts as your goal in life instead of glorifying God. This is how sin creeps up on us, numbness. And God had to take Adam and Eve out of Eden, not because he was so mean, but because he knew that pain was the only thing that would teach us how bad sin is. You see, this, this uh, doctor who uh, did all the research on leprosy, he eventually made this whole elaborate system with nerve sensors. So he would put sensors on the, on the leper's fingers, and any time that they were smashing their finger doing something, the sensor would go off, and they would hear a, a beep, beep, and they would have to, you know, oh, I must be messing up my finger here. He was trying so hard to help these people, and he said one day he saw a leper who, you know, of course, these people he was working with had been cured. They just had the nerve damage from leprosy, but he saw this man that had on the nerve, uh, the system, this elaborate system with gloves and everything, working on a car. And the guy was trying to get this thing out of the engine, and he just couldn't get it. He kept on pinching his finger, and the alarm would go off. Beep, beep, beep. And finally, the guy just jerked the glove off and did it anyway. And that's when he said it clicked for him. He realized the only thing that will actually stop people from doing destructive things is pain. That's why God has given us the gift of pain. It's not fun. It's not pretty. But if we don't have pain, we won't learn to hate sin. The wages of sin is death, and God has to allow us to suffer when we make mistakes. Now, not all suffering is a result of our own sins, and we'll get to that. But pain can be our best friend. We change our behavior when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. Look at Samson. Samson was not willing to turn his life over to God because life wasn't that painful for him. He was getting the things that made him feel good. The painkillers were working. Delilah made him feel great until life became more painful. When the pain stepped up, he became a little more willing to surrender, didn't he? And often that's what happens in people's lives. 
the girl who was terrified that she was pregnant. Maybe now she'll be willing to listen when I say, God wants to help you get to the deep roots of what's going on in your life. God wants to help you see you don't have to compulsively go from relationship with one guy to a relationship with another guy to a relationship with another guy. It doesn't have to be that way. He'll set you free, but he's not going to set you free by you saying, I'm never going to do this again. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. He's going to set you free by helping you confront those idolatrous attitudes at the root that say, I really need this. This is what I need. Pain relief, satisfaction, somebody to love me instead of Christ. What hurts hearts? There are sins that are committed against us. There are sins we commit. And there are the results of living in a sinful world. You know, during the GC session, I got to spend time with one of my closest friends ever. Her name is Bianca. She's a wonderful friend of mine, and she lives over in South Africa. But she's in a wheelchair now. She has a progressive degenerative disease. She's only 30, but it's progressively making her worse. Last time I saw her, she wasn't in a wheelchair, but that was five years ago. She could still walk more easily then. That's hard to see. That's not a result of her sin. It's a result of living in a sinful world. But I see God working so mightily in her life. You know, when she was anointed and they were praying, Lord, we know you have the power to take away this affliction. We know you can heal her. We know it's called an incurable disease by the world, but you can cure it. Bianca's prayer was, Lord, I don't know what's ahead, but I trust you with my life. Whatever you want, is fine for me. Give me the strength to bear it. That's the beauty of the gospel, that God takes us in the midst of our circumstances and gives us joy, gives us peace, gives us the power to surrender. And those circumstances teach us to surrender day by day, moment by moment. Have thine own way, Lord. Change me into your image through these things that I'm going through. Sin is our enemy. Pain is not our enemy. Pain can be our friend because it can be the thing that drives us to Christ reminds us, I've got to go to you, Lord. I'm thirsty. I'm hurting. Please be the one who I look to as the answer for everything. When truth meets life, we evaluate our priorities by comparing them to God's. And then we seek to shift our priorities to match God's instead of excusing ours or attempting to dismiss his. Like the guy who wants to leave his wife. What do I have to say to him? I'm sorry, but the fact that you're not happy in this marriage is kind of irrelevant, isn't it? Your wife is not beating you up. She's not destroying your body physically. What she's doing is making you feel frustrated. And that is making you confront your sinful nature. That down inside, you still are a glory thief. You really kind of think that God ought to be making you happy. And if God is leaving you in this miserable marriage, well, God isn't doing what he's supposed to do for me, right? I've prayed and prayed, and he hasn't taken away my suffering. Therefore, I should try to relieve my suffering myself. Wait a minute. Which is your enemy then? Pain or sin? If you're just trying to fix the situation by saying, I don't care what God says I need to do. I don't care that God says I need to be faithful in this marriage. I feel. You see what I mean? When truth meets life, we have to surrender our priorities to God. At the bottom of a broken marriage, a shattered family, or a forsaken friendship, you will always find stolen glory. We crave glory that does not belong to us, and we step on one another to get it. Rather than glorifying God by using the things he has given us to love other people, we use people to get the glory we love. Sin causes us to steal the story and rewrite it with ourselves as the lead and with our lives at center stage. That's from Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 35. You see, the central work of God's kingdom is changing us into his image. How does that relate to the woman who's saying, I just can't stand being with my husband. I can't stand to look at him, and I hate what he's doing in my daughter's life, and I can't stand watching him stand up there and preach every week. I just want to stand up and scream, that's not fair. You're a liar. I know what you've got on your computer at home. How does truth meet life for her? Now, oh, she's got a right to be upset. This is unjust. It's wrong. But can she just say, fine, I wash my hands of this. You destroy your own life. I'm not going to allow you to mess with mine. No. God has called her to minister to her husband. She promised for better or for worse to be with him. When people promise for better or for worse, they generally really only mean for better. <laughs> 
But better or worse, that means that, no, it doesn't mean that she has to live with him till death do us part, no matter how he treats her, no matter how much pornography he watches, no matter how he treats her daughter. But it does mean she needs to be committed to ministering to him. That means being willing to confront him rather than saying, well, I don't want to rock the boat by talking to the church. I don't want to rock the boat by messing everything up. She needs to say, sorry, honey, your sin has consequences. Because you're rationalizing them away, I'm going to have to up the pressure here a little bit. I'm going to have to confront you about your sin because you're trying to be comfortable. You're trying to live a lie, believe the lie. And I, as your wife, am in a position that nobody else is in. Maybe nobody else knows what a hypocrite you are. But you must realize what you're doing to yourself because your eternal life is at stake. If she loves him, she must confront him about this. And more than that, she must confront herself because at the bottom of this, why is she wanting to get out of the situation? Is it because she has this tremendous desire for holiness or is it a desire for pain relief? I just want to be out of it. God can take us in the midst of those situations and draw us close to him. That pain can be used to carve us into his image. It's very painful. But sometimes it's kind of like this. If you're, if you're not going through a lot of pain, your life can be just like this little slanted hill. You walk uphill all day long. It's not too much exertion. At the end of the day, you may be a little bit higher than you were before. But when the pain comes in, it's like climbing a cliff. You have to agonize. You have to beat your head against this wall going, I've got to keep going. I've got to keep going. I'm so tired. I don't want to do this. God, give me the strength. Keep pulling me higher. I can't do it on my own. And it may be hard and it may be painful, but at the end of the day, how much higher are you than you would have been going up that, that little slope? God wants us to wrestle with ourselves. And sometimes God sees something in you that he wants to refine. And he says, wow, think of what she could be like if I just refine her more. Turn up the fire because she will come forth as gold. Look at this man. See what I have in mind for him. The plan that I have, the way I want to use him at the end of time to lead all these people to the kingdom. But there's some selfish motives in his heart. I've got to burn those out. Because if those are still there, when he's leading all these people, he's going to fall. His pride will be his downfall and he'll lead all those people astray. So God has to turn up the heat. He has to put on the pressure. And maybe that's in your marriage, or maybe that's in your relationship with your parents, or maybe that's in some other situation in your life. But God wants to use that pain to carve you into his image because changing into his image is what it's all about. That's the purpose of our lives. God wants us to be committed to holiness, not happiness. Now, the self-esteem movement, we've been touching on this now and then in presentations, it's because it's so important. The self-esteem movement tells you that you have a right to be happy. You have a right to do whatever you want to do. Every day, in some way, we buy the lies of autonomy and self-sufficiency, worshiping the creation rather than its creator. From Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 27. You know, God is telling this guy with his obsessive-compulsive spiritual disorder, you need to rely on me to set you free, not try to be good enough to save yourself by your own works. That's a lie of the devil. We can't do that. We can't be strong enough, good enough. What is sin? As Adventists, we've always heard the, the definition of sin. What is sin? Transgression of the law. You got it. We all know that right away, 1 John 3, 4. But sin is more than that. That is the outward definition of sin. But sin is so much deeper. Sin is, according to Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 14, sin is the ultimate disease, the grand psychosis. It warps our reality so that everything looks like it's not at all. We think, wow, if I have to suffer right now, how will I ever survive? I can't go through that, rather than realizing we suffer for a little while in order to reap so much greater benefits in glory by becoming who we needed to be. Rebellion is the inborn tendency to give in to the lies of autonomy, self-sufficiency, and self-focus. What are the lies of autonomy, self-sufficiency, and self-focus? I have the right to do what I want, right? Remember that guy who's leaving his wife? I have the right to do what I want, don't I? I don't need to depend on or submit to anyone. I am all I need, myself. I am the center of my world. I'll do whatever brings me happiness. Wasn't that the lie that Lucifer bought into? I can do what I want. I will be as a god. 
Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Right? Wasn't that what the devil said? Independence, self-sufficiency, and self-absorption lead us to think of ourselves first and to climb over the fences between ourselves and our desires. We want control and hate being controlled. We want to make up the rules and change them whenever it suits us. Essentially, we want to be God, ruling our worlds according to our own will. No matter what else we are rebelling against, our rebellion is ultimately directed at God. Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 14. I see young people who battle with rebellion against their parents, and many times it's not fully without a cause. You know, their parents have treated them wrongly. They've neglected them. They've used them to try to satisfy their own selfish desires. But God has put us in a position where we must be able to submit to authority, not because authority is always justified, but because God wants us to be changed into his image by that submission to control by that dying to self, we learn to conquer our pride. We learn to no longer think that what I feel and what I want and what I need is more important. If you're going to step on me, I'm going to step on you. Sin begets sin. Other people's sinful choices in the way they treat us lead us to want to do sinful responses. But God wants us to confront those. He wants to get to the root of those and say, let me set you free, really free. When the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. The wisdom of men is foolishness. Rebellion leads us to foolishness. We become functional atheists. The fool says in his heart there is no God. And all of us, we would say, oh, no, no, I would never believe that. I know there's a God. But how do we live? Right, there, there, there is a God, and I know. But what if God doesn't give me a person to marry? I need to take this into my own hands. Because God may not be committed to making me happy. What does God say? The wisdom of men is foolishness with God. He knows what to do. He knows how to bring us to where we need to be. So maybe we won't find a spouse. How terrible. But then, maybe you didn't need a spouse to be able to be changed into the image of God. Maybe what would be most effective for you is going out there and doing ministry, sharing the gospel with people one-on-one. -on -one. But if your goal was happiness... You wanted a spouse because that was going to make me happy, right? We all have this great vision. If I could just find somebody who loves me, chooses me above everybody else in the world and says, she's more special, he's more special than everybody else in the world. Wow, now that would be happiness. But wait, God's love is what does that to us. God has said, I love you like there's nobody else in the whole world for me to even notice. When we drink in God's love, we no longer crave somebody else's love. Oh, we appreciate it. We love it. But when we don't crave it, then we're ready to go into marriage. Because in marriage, I can tell you, I love my husband and he loves me. We have this wonderful marriage that's a taste of heaven on earth. But anytime I'm not getting my love cup satisfied by God, I switch from my goal being holiness to my goal being happiness. When my goal becomes happiness, my spouse gets in the way all the time. I wanted to go there to eat. He wants to do that. I wanted to be able to do, fly here and go to somebody's wedding. He says we don't have the money. He gets in the way of my happiness all the time. How terrible. Boy, it was nice being able to be single. Back then when I just thought, if only I could be walking down the sidewalk holding hands with somebody who's committed to me forever. <laughs> Marriage is not the solution to that loneliness. Christ is the solution to that loneliness. And if you see your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or anybody else as the solution to that loneliness, your goal is no longer holiness. It becomes happiness. And then when your goal is happiness, your partner will be in the way all the time. And then, of course, you'll try to manipulate them. If only you would do this, then I could be happy. If you would just stop doing that, I could be happy. Your goal is happiness. When your goal is holiness, your spouse cannot get in the way. There's nothing that anybody can do to get between you and holiness when that's your goal because Christ is pulling in you, you in that direction and all of his power is bringing you toward holiness. The other things that people do, the more pressure they put on you, the faster you may be pressed closer to holiness when you treat the situation right, when you surrender to God. Foolishness is our inborn desire to make something else be our God. And anytime anything else gets on the throne of our heart, it's always really self, right? These people who tell me, I just love my girlfriend so much I can't give her up. Right. Six months later, you won't believe. 
that girl was such trash, you wouldn't imagine what she did to me. But now I've found somebody who's really going to satisfy me. And I love her. I know it's not about me. It's about her and just how much I want to serve her. Or the girl who's saying, I can't give up my boyfriend. He needs me. No, she needs somebody to make her feel like she's loved and worthwhile. Somebody who makes her feel like she can give them the unconditional love that no one else has ever given her, given them. But that's trying to be God for this guy. You can't save him. All you can do is get in the way so that he doesn't feel his need for God as much. The best remedy for foolishness is meditating on God as our creator and redeemer. That's why he gave us the Sabbath. That's why he wants us to spend time with him every morning in our devotional time. Meditate on how big he is, and all of a sudden you realize how tiny you are, and that these terrible struggles that you're going through that you just can't stop thinking about are so tiny. They're so insignificant. There's this huge plan of redemption going, and God is working out all these amazing things to bring you to where you need to be and to do what he wants to do in your life. You know, my children get so easily devastated by things. They're six, four, and three right now. And they see something that they want. Look at that toy, Mommy. Please, can I get it? No, I'm sorry. We can't afford to buy every toy that you think you need. Oh, it's the only thing I'll ever ask for in all my life. Please. Well, no. Oh, no, please. Wait, look at that one, Mommy. Oh, can I get that one instead? <laughs> And you know, sometimes we're not a whole lot different with God, are we? Lord, please let me have this one thing work out. If only I can get this job, I'll be so happy. Oh, please, Lord, help this to work out. We, we feel so devastated when God doesn't do the things that we thought would bring us happiness. But he's saying all along, no, no, don't, don't make your goal happiness. Make it holiness. And when our goal is holiness... We're no longer trying to be gods. Ezekiel 14 has this fascinating passage, Ezekiel 14, 1 through 5. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but part of it says, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the, put the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. What does that mean? Well, how, what does God mean when he says, I will answer you according to the multitude of your idols? Here are people who are saying, oh, there's so much going on in my life. I need to know what's going to happen. And they go to God's prophet. What a great decision. They say, I want to go to the prophet of the Lord and ask, Lord, what's going on? And God says, I'm not going to talk to you about anything except the idols of your heart. The idols of his heart. Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart. Have you ever had an idol in your heart? We all have. We all do. And God says, I'm not going to talk to you about anything except your idolatry. That's what it means when he says, I will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. He says, the idols that you have are the things we're going to talk about. Don't ask me, where am I going to go in life? What am I going to do? Who am I going to marry? Let's talk about your idols first. Because if we don't get rid of those idols, I won't be able to do in you the ministry that I want to do anyway. And even if I bring you together with the perfect person for you, the one that is everything that you dreamed of, you'll be incapable of treating them well. Because your heart is going to be consumed with selfishness. You're going to be trying to get them to make you happy. And there will be nothing I can do to make your marriage into the beautiful reflection of my love that I want it to be. We go to God and we say, please show me what you want me to do. Please show me how I can fix this situation. He says, let's talk about your idols. Because until we talk about the idols with him, he can do nothing to set us free. God wants us to be set free from the idols and not the outward idols. Here it's not talking about people that are setting up idols and bowing down before them, images, right? It says the idols of their hearts is what God wanted to talk to them about. So many of us, we get up in the morning, we go have breakfast, we talk with people, we go to school, we go to church, whatever. And we look like such great Christians. Oh, praise the Lord. I'm so happy that he worked that out for you. Let's pray about it. But down inside, we have idols of the heart. We're not bowing before an image, and so we think we're okay. But when we go to God and we say, God, what's happening in this situation? What do you want me to do? He says, let's talk first about what's going on in your heart, because that's what I want. If my husband was never coming home, never spending any time with me, 
I could be really frustrated, but what if he's in the hospital? Both of his legs are broken and he can't. Well, that's a little different, isn't it? I can say, you're not coming home. How come you're not coming home and spending time with me? This is so unfair. But he can't, right? And that's different. What, what really concerned me would be if my husband could come home but wouldn't. Can you see the difference? What's actually stressing me is not that my husband's not coming home and spending time with me. What's stressing me is that he has idols in his heart that he doesn't want to come home and spend time with me. You see how God thinks? God knows why we're not coming home to him. And those are the things he's concerned about. He says, I don't want you to have idols in your heart. If you want to be with me, then we can work this out. But if you don't want to be with me, let's talk about why you don't want to be with me. Because these are the things that we need to deal with before our relationship can work out. What is an idol of the heart? An idol of the heart is anything that rules me other than God. And uprooting idols is not an event. It's a process. As much as I'd like to say, you know, I'm just so grateful that this morning I can stand before you with no idols whatsoever in my heart. They've all been uprooted and I'm totally free of every sinful tendency. That would be wonderful. I can stand before you and say, by God's grace, I spent time with him this morning and I surrendered everything I know of to him. And he has uprooted every idol that I know of. But I know there are still things inside of me that he's going to have to tap me on the shoulder tomorrow and say, Nicole, do you realize the motive that you had when you said that with that person, you were kind of wanting them to affirm you. When you did this to your husband, you were just kind of giving him a subtle message. I really wish you'd take care of the kids so I could go relax for a while. You see what I mean? My idols in my heart are always going to be right there. I'm walking on the straight and narrow, but the devil's always pulling to try to get me off on one side. Pull, and if he can't get me off on that side, he'll let go and give me a shove. Try to push me off the other side. Look how sacrificial you are. You took care of the kids so your husband could go relax. My, you really are a good Christian, aren't you? <laughs> it doesn't really matter which side of the path we get off on. Pride or self-reliance are just as bad as giving up and saying, I don't care. I just want to be comfortable for a while. God wants to set us free from both sides and help us to walk on the straight and narrow with our eyes, not on ourselves, but on the light, walking with him. First the blade then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. God will continue leading you. You can be perfect at every stage, perfectly surrendered, and yet continually growing into his image as he shows you more and more ways that he wants you to be like him. How do we find our idols? Where the rubber meets the road, where truth meets life. When I sit down with somebody as a counselor, I can try to help them see how the gospel works. This is the purpose of counseling, right? The purpose, well, not the purpose of most counseling, but the godly purpose of counseling is for two people to sit down together, one of which is saying, I'm trying to figure out what sinful motive or what root of, of carnal nature is holding me back from the freedom that God wants me to have in this area of my life. So they sit down with someone else who's had a different experience with God, who doesn't have the same blind spots maybe. And that person can say, you know, here's something. Have you thought about this? How does the gospel apply to how you're treating this situation? And I go, wow, I never thought of that. So why do you talk to people at work when they don't agree with you with that tone of voice? You know, it's not just the fruit. That's, that's a fruit. That's something that reveals what's going on in the heart. But why do you do it? And I can go, wow, it's because I have a longing to be in control. That's my desire to be as God, knowing good and evil, having the power to do those things. You see, God wants to get to the root of things because when we pull up the weeds by the roots, they're gone. And God is the one who can pull out the roots. When we kneel before him and say, Lord, show me the roots, show me the motives, he does it. It's amazing. I remember one time when my husband and I were at church and uh, with three little kids, you know, it's sometimes very stressful to go to church. There have been many times where we're like, why do we even bother? Take all this time to get ourselves all dressed haul them all to church, sing little ditties in Sabbath school, wrestle with them throughout the sermon, never hear anything of it, and at the end go out and we're just frazzled and exhausted and they're all off schedule now. Yeah, it's intense. Just a little birth control note to you if you were thinking you needed children in the next five years. Remember what it'll do to your church experience. But anyway, so I remember this one time. We'd just gone through little kids' Sabbath school and we'd been to church right before that, so we were now headed home. So I 
am trying to gather up all the huge amount of paraphernalia that small children need to have, you know, coats and diaper bags and gloves and toys and everything else we brought along. And my husband just disappeared with, with our youngest. He's gone and he's got him along with him. And I've got two other kids and a bunch of stuff. And I'm looking everywhere for Anaya's coat. Where is her coat? I cannot find it. I scour the whole place. And finally, I'm like, okay, now I'm just going to be fighting this huge crowd of people. So I haul the two kids and everything that I've found out the door, and we're walking up the stairs trying to get to wherever my husband is. I don't know where he went. Then somebody happened to be giving away balloons. This is College Dell Church. So anyway, we're trying to go out, and somebody's giving away these little helium balloons. So I get one for my daughter and tie it on her wrist, and then I give one to my son, and he doesn't want it tied on him. No, no, no! And I said... If you don't have it tied on to you, you're going to lose it. It's going to fly up into the air as soon as you're not holding on. No, I'll hold on to it. Okay, fine. Have it your way. So he holds on to it, and I'm trying to get everything together, grab one more balloon for my other kid who's not here, wherever he is. And, of course, my son lets go of his balloon, and it goes up to the church ceiling, and he starts screaming. You can hear him over 400 people. Don't ask me how one four-year-old can make more noise than 400 people, but he does. And I just wanted to scream. I wanted to rip all my hair out or all their hair out or something. <laughs> so I'm just like, let's just go. Let's just go. So we go and stand outside the door freezing. And my daughter doesn't have her coat. And I see our van coming across the parking lot. So it pulls up in front of the church door. And my husband gets out and says, sorry, I, I know how long it takes Skylar to walk to the car. So I just thought I'd take him, get a, get a head start, and get him into the car. And then I could drive over here and pick you up. And I said, do you have an AS coat? He said, yes, I have it right here. Oh, I'm sorry, were you looking for that? Okay, so now I know he isn't a selfish Grinch who's just, you know, robbed me of my whole day. He's being so kind and sacrificial. But I'm still angry, right? Oh, I was still so mad. I said, just, let's just get in and get home. So I sit down in the car. He's like, I'm sorry, honey, is there anything I can do? No. I just need to pray. <laughs> so we get home. Fortunately, our house is a total of one minute from Collegedale Church. <laughs> I get out and just go in the bedroom and shut the door and kneel down and pray, Lord, why am I so angry? And immediately, I know why. The blinders fall off. It's because I want it to be my husband's fault that I'm angry. It's because of my pride. I want it to be his fault that I lost control and wanted to scream in the middle of 400 people. It's supposed to be his fault, not mine. And now I know, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Now what do I do? And the Lord says, you need to go and apologize. All right, Lord, take the pride out of me. Take it out of me. And he does. It's beautiful. The gospel works. It always works. It always works when we give ourselves to God and surrender. And that, that moment of prayer is all it took. It didn't take hours and days for me to agonize through that. Sometimes there are times I just have to really wrestle. Lord, what is it that's at the bottom of why I have this struggle with control or, or whatever it else it is? But right away, the Lord helped me. I went out and said, I'm so sorry, honey. I realize now what was wrong. I wanted it to be your fault that I was being so angry and unchristian. Please forgive me. He forgave me. The kids forgave me. Everything was wonderful. God is so good. You see, he wants to get down to the thoughts and motives of the heart. That's what the word does. It pierces down to the dividing asunder of the thoughts and motives of the heart. And as we give ourselves to God, he shows us what it is that's going on. You may not be able to go to a Christian counselor who can help you through some of these things. And sometimes it's hard to find a counselor that really is all about helping you see how truth meets life. So many people, even Christian counselors, are trained to just listen to you, help you find the answers within yourself. But that's a humanistic perspective. How are you supposed to find the answers within yourself? Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. You need to find your answers in the word of God by comparing what's going on in your life with truth. When truth meets life, how do we figure out that clash? How do we change life to meet truth? By surrendering, by giving it to God and asking him to work in us and through us for his glory and by beholding him. When we see how he would handle a situation, then we say, Lord, make me like that. And he does. He always does. What about this young man who was addicted to pornography that I was just talking to last week? I told him, you need to figure out what is the root before God. Lay your heart open to him. Pornography is a fruit sin, not a root sin. The root sin is something else. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Maybe it's the feeling that 
Maybe if I surrender everything to God, he's going to take away the pleasures. What if I never get to get married? What if I never get to have sex? Then what? Well, then what? Which was your goal, holiness or happiness? You see, when our stolen glory gets in the way, we think that we have a right for God to make us happy. Shouldn't he? We're giving everything up for him. Shouldn't he make us happy at least? Give us a few of the things? All I'm asking for is somebody to marry God. How complicated is that? But God wants us to see your goal can't be getting married. Your goal must be holiness. And when your goal is holiness, then you can have a happy marriage. But if your goal is not holiness, don't even kid yourself. You're not going to have a marriage that's what I intended marriage to be. It's impossible because your goal is fundamentally wrong. Marriage is to be a reflection of how Christ and the church relate to each other. This incredible love relationship. When two people are each secretly just trying to get the other person to make them happy, you got two leeches and no dog. You just, it's all downhill from there. You're not going to be happy. When you want to find out what your idols are, evaluate prayerfully. Make a list. Sometimes it can be really helpful. Maybe you're not a list person, but this is something that's worked well for many people I know. Make a list of what your heart hungers after. When you start feeling down, when you start needing something to make you feel better, to satisfy that restless craving, what is it you're looking for? Is it something to make you feel good? Do you want to be powerful? Do you want to be loved? Do you want to be worth something? Whatever it is, then you can compare yourself to what the Bible says. Where do you turn when you're down? What craving drives you to destructive thoughts and or behaviors? You know, often the destructive things that you're doing may just be going on in your head. Maybe it's daydreaming. Maybe it's lusting after your future spouse. I'll just imagine what it would be like to be with them. These are idols of the heart. That's committing adultery on your future spouse. God doesn't want you to think that way. He doesn't want you to live that way. A fantasy sex life is always self-focused. God's desire for sex is that it's not self-focused. It's two people seeking to minister and to show love to each other. That's why people can never make love outside of marriage. They can have sex, but they'll never really be making love. What motivates you to spend your time the way that you do? When you have an hour to spare, do you spend it in Bible study? Do you spend it in trying to put together something that you've been wanting to work through in the Bible? You're, no, no, I'll do that in my devotional time. Well, that's the problem right there. Who has your heart? With whom are your thoughts? Of whom do you love to converse? If we are Christ's, our thoughts will be of him. Our sweetest thoughts, our most wonderful times will be times of communion with him. And then that glow will go with us throughout our day after our devotional time, that sense of being in the light. When we start straying, God will say, no, no, no. Don't talk to them that way. Try this. Think about it this way. Let's take some time to pray. You know, we'll be sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit because we've been dwelling in the light of his presence. How does God want us to be surrendered to him? What is your God like? Prayerfully evaluate how the God you worship is different than the God of the Bible. Yesterday, some of you were in the seminar when I was talking about how our hearts can be like a dry sponge in a Ziploc bag. We put it into the love of God, trying to get that thirst satisfied, but it just doesn't work. We come up dry again. Sometimes that's because our, our image of who God is is warped by this sinful world, maybe by the way we were treated by our parents or by other significant people in our life until we feel that God demands that we be perfect before he'll accept us, that God doesn't love us unless we satisfy him or that God doesn't care whether we really need him. You know, there's the opposite lie. Uh, God isn't really that concerned about my entertainment choices, right? It doesn't really matter that much. These are, these are not new lies. The devil is not really that creative. He just recycles the same old lies because generation after generation falls for the same ones, right? Ye shall not surely die. It doesn't really matter whether you're totally surrendered to God in your entertainment choices, right? It's not that big a deal if you know you really shouldn't be listening to this music, but it's not that important, right? I know I really shouldn't be flirting so much. I really should cut down on that. You know what I mean? God says, let it go. Surrender it to me. But the devil says, you shall not surely die. It's not that bad. It's not going to cost you eternal life. It may, not, you know, it may not be the best, but it's not that important. You shall not surely die if you just eat a little bit of the fruit. 
The devil just uses the same lies over and over again, and we keep falling for them. What is your God like? The devil painted to Adam and Eve this God who said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Look, God is keeping good things back from you. If you don't surrender, if you surrender to him, he might not give you all the things that you long for. He might not give you that spouse. He may not give you that job. He may end up making you live in this boring life, working in an industrial job, and what kind of life is that? Maybe you'll never even get married. Maybe you'll end up just getting fat and ugly, and no one will ever love you. You sure you want to surrender to a God who does that to some people? That's what he does. He lets them go work in a warehouse all day, every day, all their lives, and they're not even pretty, and they don't even get married. How awful would that be? Do we want to trust a God like that? Is your goal holiness or happiness? Sometimes we get this picture in our minds of, God, if you're going to give me this wonderful life and fulfilling ministry and rich marriage, oh, sure, I'm going to follow you. But he says, but what if I don't? Not because he doesn't want to bless us, but because he wants our hearts. What kind of God are you worshiping? Prayerfully evaluate how the God you worship is different than the God of the Bible. When you go to church, do you feel that he wants to deeply connect with you? When you spend time in your devotional time, do you know that he longs to be with you? Or do you just talk about shallow, superficial stuff with him? Maybe your parents didn't reflect to you a God who wants to know every detail of what happened in your day. Maybe they didn't reflect to you somebody who cared about those things, who cared about the pain you were in. Sometimes that Ziploc bag around your heart may be pretty tough. You pray and pray and pray, and yet you feel that God isn't reaching down to you. But those are lies of the devil. Evaluate. What is this God that I think he's like? How is he different? How I feel he is? How is that different than what the Bible says he is? And when what I feel outweighs what God says he's like, we've got to reverse that by meditating on what he says he's like and not what I feel he's like until that becomes our reality. Sin warps us. So we don't understand what reality is like. But God wants to set us free. Prayerfully evaluate some of the things that may help. What did you long for as a child and not have? Maybe your parents loved you very much, but their love language was different than yours. And they thought by giving you lots of gifts and showering quality time on you, that would help. But what you needed was to be touched. God understands that. He wants to give you what you long for. What, are you, what do you instinctively seek when you're down? You seek something to satisfy what desires? Somebody to love you? Popularity? Comfort? What is it that you look for? God wants you to receive from him what you're looking for in other things so you won't be thirsty anymore. What does your heart ache for? Many people are driven to sexual addictions because they crave intimacy and they're not getting it with God. When you get that intimacy with God, then you don't crave it anymore. Then you're free to have a relationship someday with someone sexually that's not driven by your cravings. How does God promise to satisfy your heart longings? This is where you study the word of God. Meditate on it. Find a verse or a whole string of verses, whatever it is, stories, whatever it is in the Bible that says God is what I long for. And meditate on those things. Drink them in. Find the promises that show you God does work in people's situations like mine because the Bible covers every one of those situations we face in general principles and going to heart, heart issues. Many people just struggle to worship God because the God that they're trying to worship is not a God that's very lovable. Their image of him is warped, and as they let the word of God puncture that Ziploc bag, his love flows in and satisfies the thirst in their hearts. Who has the heart? Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 68, says, Whatever rules the heart will exercise inescapable influence over the person's life and behavior. When you want to know who has your heart, look at what's ruling your life and your behavior. How do you spend your time? What do you long for? These are the things that will help you. The roots are still down there underneath, but the fruits will help you figure out what kind of roots you have. Sin is much more than doing the wrong thing. It begins with loving, worshiping, and serving the wrong thing. You know, think of that tree in our backyard that needed to be cut down. We could have taken the scissors to all the leaves, cut them all off, but they'll come right back. You can put in all kinds of filters to stop your computer from being able to access bad things, and that's important, that's useful for breaking that cycle of the broken cistern. But you've got to be sure you go back and drink from the fountain of living water, or else you'll find another way to sin. Either you'll find another computer, or you'll find a different kind of sin that satisfies the same craving. 
The deepest issues of the human struggle are not issues of pain and suffering, but the issue of worship, because what rules our hearts will control the way we respond to both suffering and blessing. So many people spend their lives consumed with, Lord, if you could just fix these circumstances in my life, then I'd be happy. If I could get a bigger house, if I didn't have to deal with this situation with my husband, Lord, just please fix this, please fix that, one thing at a time. And it doesn't ever fix everything. One blessing after another is ignored because we still are focused on, if you could just fix that, then I think I could be happy. Our goal is still happiness. If we fail to examine our hearts, then anything else on the outside isn't going to satisfy, isn't going to solve the problems. I don't know what struggle you're facing, but I know that God holds the keys. I know that he has the answers, that he wants to set you free, that he has the tools. I don't know how it'll work, but I know that he will change your situation for his glory. He'll take whatever's going on in your life and set you free. Keep thy heart with all diligence, Proverbs 4.23 says, for out of it are the issues of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us, for living out your life within us, for changing us and even using the gifts of pain. Lord, we thank you for the circumstances that you've placed us in, as unpleasant as they may be, as hard as it is to deal with some of the things that we don't like in this world, Lord. Help us to make our goals come in tune with your goals, to become driven to holiness and not just to happiness. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen. Amen.